This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Bring, bring it back. Hello and welcome to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi guys, I'm Jim. Uh, I'm the Leicester City representative for the EPL Roundtable. You can find me on Twitter at Jim988. Hi, I'm Jake, uh, Newcastle supporter. You can get me on Twitter at JakeJapper with two N's and I write for EPL Index. Awesome. Thanks to both of you so much for joining us today. It has indeed been a crazy day of football, and we will get to all of that starting about now-ish, perhaps. The least exciting thing to happen all day was just Manchester City winning another trophy, this time the Carabao Cup, uh, which they've now won despite its multiple name changes, four out of the last six times out. Um, so anyway, just wanted to part congratulations to them and curious to get your guys' thoughts on if there's any particular reason why this, this uh, competition seems to suit them so well. Um, they've got a massive squad, probably. I think even the most hardened Liverpool fans will probably struggle to argue that they've got a deeper squad or anybody else in the Premier League has got a deeper squad than Manchester City. Um, I think a lot of the time, I'm surprised, I think more clubs probably go harder after the Carabao Cup almost than the FA Cup because of the timing. Uh, the fact that you can have a trophy on the board by mid or late February, um, I think is probably quite appealing to a lot of managers compared to, say, scrambling for league position, Champions League and FA Cup, for example, um, in the kind of latter stages of, of May uh, and sometimes into early June, depending on the, the Champions League final date. So, yeah, I think I, I think it's difficult to get away from the fact that they've just got a ridiculous squad. I think City could probably put out a B team that would, rival most top four teams um you know they could put out two starting 11s uh that would push most top four teams close um and just yeah i think it's just their you know it shows their ascent to dominance over the last few years and i know they haven't always won the premier league but they've been building gradually and gradually and adding more and more quality to their side um i think it's just you know it's the perfect illustration of that the fact that they're able to go deep so often in so many cup competitions yeah, I think it's it's just a case of them having the best best team slash squad in the league, isn't it? So in that sense, they're always going to be favourites to win uh, every cup competition, including this one. Uh, I think it's quite good that it's a cup that finishes in February, so it's you you know you don't get that much fixture congestion and, and things like that, and they won't they're not thinking too much about the latter stage of the Champions League and the the title is only just sort of coming into it now, sort of being billed as a title race. So it's you know, if it had finished any later, maybe they wouldn't have taken it so seriously. But I, I think Pep Guardiola deserves a lot of credit for the way he's treated the competition. Um, I think he, he sort of looks at it the same way as Mourinho did. Mourinho used to be a big fan of, this, uh, of the uh, League Cup, always looking to win it um, when he was at Chelsea, and then again at Manchester United. I think he's probably won it more times than most managers. 
um, in recent history anyway. So I think it, it is a, it is and it's good to sort of build that winning mentality. And uh, you know, every single year an English club gets talked about for a quadruple, which I think is is never going to happen. And if it ever did, it'll be like lightning in a bottle kind kind of thing because it, that is very very difficult to do that. But it does get them off on a good uh, you know good start and it gets them confidence, gets a bit of winning mentality, and, and it takes a lot of the pressure off because. A team like City, um, the pressure would be so huge if they got to May needing to win a cup final or, you know, something like that to to win a cup, to, to sort of mug their season, to, to avoid going trophyless. So it sort of just gets out of the way now. And, and you know, I, I don't think City are, are not going to win another title this season. I think they'll probably win something, probably the league, maybe the Champions League, maybe the FA Cup as well. You know, they're probably going to win something else, if not more. Um, but, you know, it does stop that pressure for, from from going on them as much as other teams and you've seen it now with Liverpool uh, if Liverpool went for another season without a um, cup that might be you know seen as a, a massive negative for them considering the progress they've made and you'll see sort of seeing the pressure on them in the league at the moment where City now they can I think it's off them a lot because of this and it, it's not a big competition but it does just provide a start and I think there's going to be bigger things for City this season as well. Yeah, I think credit to them and their squad size is very impressive, both of you say. And I hadn't really thought about the scheduling of, of this tournament and why focusing on this rather than the FA Cup might kind of fit on the calendar a little bit better. Uh, the one obvious downside to today's match is Fernandinho looks to have picked up an injury. Um, we'll see how well he recovers from that. But obviously, City have struggled this year uh, when he has not been available. So we'll see what happens there. But frankly, the news cycle after this match is not going to be about Manchester City, which is why we wanted to start there, because a team won a trophy today, and it's going to be the underline for a lot of different people uh, waking up tomorrow and, and reading the papers. The The main thing that's that's so obvious was uh, Kepa Aretha Balaga refusing to come off for Chelsea uh, after picking up what looked to be a slight hamstring injury, maybe a cramp. Um, sorry, tries to initiate the substitution, brings Caballero off the bench. He's waiting on the touchline to enter the match. The number goes up on the board, and uh, Keeper Aretha Balaga just refuses to come off. David Luiz goes up to him, tries to talk to him into going off, and he just keeps saying no. No other players get involved in the situation. And so he just stays in, ends up scuffing uh, Aguero's penalty, does end up saving one of them, um, but on the whole, obviously does not work out for them as they did not win the trophy today. But what did you guys make of that situation on the whole? I just think it sums up the whole sorry affair with um, with Maurizio Sorry at Chelsea. I think his position is, I think his position almost became untenable a little while back. And I think it's just slowly drifting towards, um, towards a parting of company. And then this has just kind of seemingly accelerated the process. You know, there was talk of him having three games to save his job earlier in the week, one being the Malmo uh, Europa League game, which they came through relatively um, easily after a bit of a sticky patch in the opening half. Uh, the the, the Carabao Cup today and then the midweek uh, Premier League game against Tottenham, which is obviously a tricky a tricky game at the best of times, especially if it's to save your job. Now, mm. I'm starting to wonder if regardless of that Tottenham result, you know, his fate is almost sealed because of this not necessarily because of this but because it what it illustrates around the dressing room um as someone and i'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later as someone who's a fan of a club that have uh plenty of player power in their dressing room shall we say um i think it's clear and obvious that, that it was a kind of a um you know a, it was a, a signal of um you know defiance from kepper today he clearly didn't respect his manager's decision to bring him off. And while I appreciate 
these players are highly tuned athletes who want to win. If your manager tells you you need to come off, and for the good of the team, it wasn't it wasn't a tactical substitution. There, there was no, surely after two cramps in um, you know in extra time, there's no misunderstanding why he'd want to be subbed off um, or why Sari would want to sub him off in that situation. It makes absolutely no sense to leave on a goalkeeper who's played 120 minutes, has shown signs of fatigue. Not least when you've got Willy Caballero on the bench to come on, who won this competition, the Carabao Cup, for Manchester City two years ago when they won on penalties. Um, you know, he was geared up and ready to go. And the poor guy stood there not knowing where to look as the goalkeeper he's supposed to be replacing just refuses to move. And let's be honest, there weren't too many Chelsea players getting too, um, you know, too close to Kepa to tell him mm-hmm. that he needs go or to try and persuade him in that direction that to me speaks volumes about the mentality in that Chelsea dressing room um that perhaps they are suspecting that the manager isn't going to be there in a few weeks time and that actually the smart play from you know their point of view is to let the manager rage on the sidelines throw bottles you know let off some steam. At one point, he looked like he was going to walk down the tunnel and that might just be it. Um, but I think maybe he kind of caught his, you know, caught himself and came back and settled into his seat, although kind of still obviously very, very upset and annoyed at the situation, and quite rightly so. It's just a huge show of disrespect. And I think it just sets a tone for what is going to be a really, really difficult few days um, for Maurizio Sarri to save his job. Because even if there's a result against Tottenham now, um, which, let's be honest, that looks particularly unlikely given, you know, if this is a motivation issue around the squad generally. They looked up for it today. and uh, You know, it could have gone the same way as the 6-0 had their hearts not been in it. But, and I'm not suggesting that they weren't up for it today because it is a cup final, but there's a there's a elite game around the corner which could go very, very differently based on what we saw against Manchester City a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I just think it, it speaks volumes about that team and the way that they view their manager and the kind of... It was just disdainful. It was completely kind of disrespectful. And I think, you know, we always say it's the manager that suffers when you're on a bad run of results. You can't get rid of an entire squad of players. It's always the manager that pays the price. And I think this is just another step forward towards that becoming the case and you know Chelsea will be looking for a new manager again in a couple of weeks time if not sooner yeah it's it's ridiculous it's difficult not to agree with a lot of what Jim just said there um a lot of it I I completely agree with um I think it just shows it's not only a lack of respect for Sarri I think it's a lack of respect for for Willy Caballero who's waiting to come on Mm. I think it's a lack of respect for all the other players on the pitch I think it's a lack of respect for the supporters that pay to go I just think he he comes out of it looking awful. Kepa does. He, you know this is this is a club that we've spoken about time and time again on this podcast about. You know the players have too much power. Uh, it's difficult for a manager really to settle there. Uh, I don't think it's Sarri's position has become untenable. I think it's been untenable since he got there. And I think any Chelsea manager that position is untenable purely because of the circumstances and the uh, that they're expected to work in with these squad of players who just have far too much power and just don't really care and don't you know care for authority uh, like they should i you know conte last season it was completely untenable it it it, it was with Mourinho, it was with you know ancelotti it was with di matteo it's just it's been time and time again and these are top top coaches uh, and they just they just completely just given no respect um he should have come off i and i don't understand why the the management back down. They should, you know, they had the opportunity. They should have just made him come off. And I think they they haven't really 
come out of it looking good because of that. They've let him win. It's just like a kid throwing a hissy fit and he's come out winning. And I think this is the type of thing that happens at Chelsea all the time. It's it's quite frankly ridiculous. but yeah, he's not going to be there much longer, is he? He can't. He can't survive that. That it's that's the most blatant show of disrespect I've seen from a from a player to a manager in years. It was I, I couldn't believe it was happening. Um, and then it was you know made worse in the penalty shootout when he should have saved Aguero's penalty. So you know he's he's not really you know if if you do that and you make a, such a point of staying on, it's he should have. You know, and then to, to sort of embarrass yourself in the shootout with that you know, shot that he said should have saved was bad as well. Uh, I saw one view saying that he might have been, you know, wasting time to get to penalties and that maybe wasn't cramping, but that's the t- type of information that you'd get from the medical team to the manager. Um, so I'm not sure if that was the case, but yeah, it, it was it was really, really bad. Um, and I just don't really see how Chelsea are going to come out of this. You know, they, they're going to have to find a new manager that they, they you know we're going to come on to later what other things are going on at the club which are not good it's, it's been a really terrible week for Chelsea and it was it was looking for for 118 119 minutes like they turned a corner and, and the players were getting back on board um it was a really committed performance there's a lot of positive to take and then they you know he, he goes and does that and ruins it and, and just casts a cloud over the club again for the next few days which is ridiculous and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have you know I would not have blamed Sarah if he would have just walked out the tunnel and walked out of the club then because it it was ridiculous and I I feel so sorry for him um for, for what he's been been for at Chelsea I think things take time and I don't think he's been given time and that, and that club was not the one for him if he's going to try and build a project like he did at Napoli um and yeah, it's, it, you know, what do they say? He smoked like 80 a day before he took this job. He's probably smoking like 380 a day now, isn't he? That's probably where he's going. He probably wanted a cigarette. He was so, so stressed <laughs> after that situation. But no, he's he's going to go and he's probably going to go back to Italy and, and get a nice job there and, and repair his reputation. And, and he's yet another highly rated coach that's gone to Chelsea and leaves distant and looking like an absolute clown <laughs> because of these players it's not the managers it's these players and it's it's you know before you could say John Terry Frank Lampard at least they've been there for a long time and and you know people like that Drogba they had that sort of authority you know at least you could kind of understand why they were doing what they were doing and why they had that power this is a 24 year old keeper who's played about 20 games in the Premier League and he, he's come into the club in the summer. He's already taken on that attitude. It's it's ridiculous. And yeah, it, it angered me. And I'm not even a Chelsea fan, so I I can't imagine how, how they must be feeling. The thing <laughs> is, though, where does it stop? Because if the next, you know, regardless of who the next manager is, there's not going to be a huge turnover of players in the summer for reasons that we'll come on to a little bit later, I'm sure. But how, how difficult is that going to be for a, a manager knowing that? You're only really a couple of bad results away from potentially losing the dressing room and having the same problems that your predecessors have all had and all fallen victim to. You know, Sari's been in that job about seven months and he's <laughs> he's looking like he's going to be leaving soon. Now, even if that's with a hefty payoff, you know, it doesn't make the job look overly attractive from a personnel point of view. Um, you know, even to as one of the you know one of the biggest draws in in world football from a managerial perspective. It's, it's just not a great look for Chelsea overall. And I just It's difficult to see how they get out of this kind of potential tailspin of of characters in the dressing room just torpedoing a, a manager whenever they, you know, they feel that it's not going their way. 
Yeah, it's genuinely crazy, and it leaves me wondering if Mourinho is the only potential answer. Um, you know, uh, for me, I think I think the obvious answer, the only one that 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 makes sense at this point, is Frank Lampard. And I don't even think it would be a great appointment. I just think it's it's to me, it just look makes sense. You know, they're going to need to play young players. They're going to need to to blood the next generation. And and this is a man. This is a somebody that's been in that dressing room as one of those players. He's won everything at Chelsea. Um, it's, you know, if you see what. Solskjaer has done at Man United. Yeah, there's there's big flaws to it, and I'm sure we're gonna, you know, there's there, there's a lot of negatives to to making that appointment. They're obviously not world class coaches, but just getting somebody that understands the club and just that can build for the future, and just somebody that has obviously got a relationship with Abramovich already might might make sense. And that's why Mourinho makes sense as well. I could see either of them working. For me, they're the only two that should be considered because they're, they're the only two that can make make this mess work for me and and it would be a risk for Lampard but you know we're going to come onto the transfer stuff later and he, he could actually bring in these young players and he's got a couple of them on loan at, at Derby at the moment not done amazingly at Derby but you know he's used to playing at the top level so maybe managing at the top level might be better suited to him I don't know but yeah they're, they're the only two for me that I think Given what happened with Mourinho at Manchester United and the sudden turnaround under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the last kind of 10, 12 weeks or so, it'd mm. be interesting to see what had happened with Mourinho going into that that Chelsea dressing room. It's very much out of the frying pan into the fire, I think, on that perspective. Yeah, could be. Uh, we're just thinking familiarity and he has dominated that, that dressing room before and is one of the very few to have ever done so. Um, but yeah, do, do agree that his, his uh, stock is certainly not where it once was. Um, but it does sound like neither of you particularly think he'll be sacked come tomorrow. So, Jim, as you say, they play Tottenham midweek. I, I assume we think we'll never see uh, Kipo start for Chelsea so long as Sarri is still there? Uh, it would. I think it would be um, difficult for Sarri to look himself in the mirror, wouldn't it? If he, if he had you know, such an issue... Um, with Kepper and then to, to start him a couple of days later. I think, you know, it might be the last act of defiance on Chel- on Sari's part to to drop him um, for, assuming it'll be for Willy Caballero um, against Spurs. And then that might well be his last game in charge. Like I say, the, you know, there's been a lot of talk that that will be the third of three games with which he had to save his job. Um, I definitely think he's in need of a huge result if that is true. Um, and this kind of player issue, um, if that is a wider spread player dressing room issue, and this has just aired that dirty laundry very, very publicly, um, then he might not even be able to salvage it from there. It might just be a case of going through the motions against Tottenham. Uh, and I know that's obviously a game that means a lot to both clubs because of the the kind of London derby element to it. But it might just be a case that it just comes too soon to, to let him go. Um, and, you know, I think it would be difficult to let him go tomorrow. Ultimately, then it would have to be tomorrow, I guess, and Monday, um, as we record. Um, they could do. I, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't rule it out at this point. I think it's more likely that he goes on Monday than it was before the game, regardless of the result, because I think it just puts his position even more in a more untenable position than it was before, regardless of the outcome. You know, because actually they played relatively well. Um, and they should have come out of that game with some credit. And what they actually came out with is looking like a laughing stock. And that's not a good look for anybody, let alone someone, you know, in as much strife as Sari is. Um, but again, it might just be logistics that he's in charge to all intents and purposes. You know, whether he's actually got any influence at this stage by the looks of it is is a different story. Um, and then they look to to move on to, to a replacement 
following that Spurs game um, in a couple of days. But yeah, good luck to whoever takes that on because um, it's going to be a well-paid job. But I think it's a, it's a, almost a poison chalice at this point. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. But again, just one of the crazier things you'll ever see in a football match is a player refusing to be substituted. Um, and this is the second of huge blows uh, potentially for Chelsea this week. Earlier uh, this week, FIFA handed down a two-window transfer ban to Chelsea, um, mostly involving Bertrand Traore and, and them trying to skirt around registration rules. Um, are you surprised that the first big transfer ban in recent Premier League memory has has to do with youth registration instead of the kind of financial doping that has become so endemic in the game? I'm not overly surprised purely because I think there are so many clubs that have faced up to potential consequences and I'll use that word potential consequences of financial fair play or lack thereof and seemingly come off very very lightly um you know there haven't been a huge given the amount of money being splashed around in football it's very very difficult to believe that you know some clubs aren't being given a little bit of help where they shouldn't be potentially if you're playing exactly by the rules um, by the footballing authorities. Um, so the youth registration thing seems a little bit more clear-cut in that sense. Like you're able to, you know, put a lot more parameters on that. And I know FFP, you know, and all the kind of financial doping regulations are supposed to be in place to stop people um, doing that. But it just seems like the youth player thing is the kind of the hot topic at the moment. And something that, you know, we've seen several clubs, um, a couple in Spain, um, it was Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid. They both had, you know, kind of mm. issues around this um, in the last couple of years. Um, and it just seems like the area that people are focused on more, maybe because if you lift the lid on financial doping in football, you don't know what kind of can of worms that you're opening um, because of the amount of money flowing around between clubs. And like you say, the, the links between clubs and, you know, in Manchester City's case, for example, or PSG's case, kind of, they, they are the national team to all intents and purposes, of oil-rich Emirati states. Um, and if you start going to poke around into the source of those funds a little bit too closely, um, you know, you don't know what kind of you might find and you pull, the, you pull on that thread, it kind of makes a huge deal for, for football as a whole. Whereas this um, signing youth players, you know, uh, and skirting around those laws, as you said, particularly with regards to Burton Traore and payments made to, I think it was his mother that was paid Mm. Um, a six-figure amount by the club, and um, they, you know, they were offering to pay to uh, send him to one of the best schools in, in England as well. On top of that, so um, yeah, it's it's just look, it just looks like they are taking the relatively low-hanging fruit that is uh, the youth signing policies, as opposed to the more in-depth and perhaps murky waters of um, of FFP. Uh, not that either should be ignored. Um, and not that one has any more credence than the other, but it, it just feels like one happens in isolation, whereas the other is the first kind of Jenga piece in what could be a, a massive, um, a massive kind of wider footballing scandal, which will, will kind of have those repercussions and those ripple effects that go far beyond the individual clubs. Whereas the, the youth training policy is is very much isolated to one club, and you know transfer bans can be handed out relatively routinely because all the evidence is there out in the open, mm. player registrations and things like that. It's probably a lot more easy to prove um, than the financial doping angle because of the fact that accounts can be uh, massaged and you know. Some of the stuff we saw with the um, 
with the, the football leaks earlier earlier this year or late last year with kind of you know sponsorship deals from companies that are owned by um owners of football clubs essentially you know paying paying themselves essentially from one company to another in the form of sponsorship um particularly with regards to the manchester city stuff and, and paris Saint germain so yeah it just feels like a, a, an easier a target for the, the footballing authorities to take rather than the ffp um uh, financial doping element which could be a whole house of cards that comes crumbling down if you start pulling at the threads yeah, it doesn't really surprise me either. I think it, with the financial doping, it's if the Premier League or or the FA or who you know, FIFA or anything like that take you know start dishing out punishments for that, they're sort of looking a gift horse in the mouth kind of thing because that's the sort of thing that makes the product so good because that's how these clubs can get the players they can and can continue running like this. So I don't think they, you know, it's it's one of the things I think just gets ignored and, and you know. Um, as Jim said, it's, it's it's there's so much, you know, there's so much that would come out of that, and so many clubs would get. There's just too much in that, and and I think it's one of the things that's just going to get ignored. But this this young youth player thing that Chelsea have been punished for, it's not a surprise because I think it was back in sort of 2011 time they got a similar punishment, or, or you know even earlier than that, went about Gail was it Gail Kakuta, the 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 player they illegally signed in France Ooh, who they thought uh, yeah, so. going to be a really good player, uh, and that got suspended, that transfer ban at the end. So that's. You know, this is the second time Chelsea have been caught doing something like this. So it's not surprising again, uh, such a, a heavy ban. And, and for that reason, uh, I think that transfer ban got suspended. So this one's probably not going to be because uh, it's the second time they've, they've been done for this offence. So it's it's not surprising it's Chelsea. Um, there's probably other clubs that, that could that could get punished for similar things. I think I've read something about Jane Sancho in Manchester City was, was being looked at as well, um, the way he was signed. So, yeah, it's... It's not surprising, and I'm sure there'll be more transfer bans like this in the future, as there have been in other countries. But yeah, I just don't think the, I just don't think the the authorities have the the desire or the want to really punish clubs for for illegally, you know, cooking their books and and using finance, um, you know, financial doping to to get you know more transfer funds and more wages and things. Like that. I just don't think it's that's they're interested in that because they like the the product is a result of that it's worth noting as well that Chelsea are going to appeal the transfer ban but I think that might well be in vain um, given the uh, the severity of it and the figures involved there are, I think there's still mm. 29 players that um, they're alleged to have um, to have to have done the involved with some wrongdoing they've been cleared of about 60 others um, in total but there were still I think there's still 29 players that the they felt that there was some kind of wrongdoing. So even if some of those are erroneous, then you're still looking at a pretty hefty number and probably the transfer van being held up. Yeah, and it should also be noted that the one potential benefit of challenging this ruling is you get something that happens for you like what happened at Barcelona, where it was tied up in the courts long enough for them to sign players in the summer. Yeah. And then it's the following two. Um, yeah. did, and you I feel like maybe Letty did that as well. If memory yeah, people that you can make all the signings that you feel you would need, can't you, for the next couple of years, and then While you can sit. It's a lot right. easier to do that if you know you've got six months to make your moves. Whereas if it happens to you and then it's in, with immediate effect during the season, um, you're obviously in a much less favourable position in terms of your long term planning. Yeah, how do you guys think that Chelsea will kind of manage this twelve month period whenever it actually starts? Well, the issue that they've got, I guess 
first and foremost is that Eden Hazard potentially is looking to move on. Um, it sounds like he says he's made his mind up about his future, um, whether that's to stay at Chelsea or more likely, I think, to be heading for sunnier climbs and, uh, and Madrid. But, you know, that that's an issue. Does, does that transfer happen if they can't sign any players to replace him? Um, and what does that impact impact him? Because I think he feels like now is the time, the optimum time uh, to move to Madrid. I think the move could have been potentially on in the summer and didn't happen. Um, is it, he's not going to want to wait um, any longer. And Chelsea can only potentially only sell players. So do they cope without him? I, I mean, from a, from a purely kind of analytical standpoint, I guess it forces them to potentially use a lot of the younger players who they seem to be stockpiling and never playing. Um, you know, you, even this season, it's been very public, the um, the stuff with Hudson-Odoi wanting to move on and wanting to move to, to Bayern Munich to get a bit more playing time. Well, a lot more playing time. Any, any playing time would be a lot more playing time for him. Um, and, you know, I guess, it, I think part of the issue with Chelsea is that they have a, such a high turnover of managers that even when a new manager comes in, even with the best of intentions, you are under pressure so immediately to deliver results that you almost feel that you can't blood those youngsters into the first team because they're inherently more of a risk than the more established players. There might It might not even be a question of talent. You might have a player that's just as talented, but it's just that younger players are more likely to make those mistakes. And it, if they impact your long-term future as a manager, do you, uh, does anyone have the stones to stay up and say, right, I'm going to play hudson Adoy or Ruben Loftus-Cheek in these positions because I believe they're a better shout than a more established player. Um, and I think it's just, yeah, I think it's inherent. Part of it is the stockpiling of the players. If you've got so many players, you physically can't get them all into your team. Um, and also the turnover of the managers means that everyone's too scared to take a chance on the youth players because if you take time to blood those players and it takes six, nine, 12 months, you might not be there if the, the results don't go your way. Sorry is the perfect example of that. Um, and so you fall back on the more established names, which you've paid a lot of money for, as opposed to the younger players who may well have been uh, picked up at a relatively low cost. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they, um, how they uh, cope with it. Um, you know, we've often talked about the, the amount of players they've got out on loan. I've actually got the list up in front of me to see if any of them could be any use to Chelsea. <laughs> And not many of them really can. I'm slightly surprised with the lack of obvious quality that's our loan from Chelsea when we, you know, we think about them stockpiling talent and, and sending out a lot of good players uh, on loan to sort of raise their values. Uh, you know, in the past, they've had De Bruyne out on loan, Salah out on loan. Uh, yeah, it's not that sort of quality anymore. Um, Reese James, he's a fullback on loan at Wigan. I've seen a lot of him in the Championship. He's very good and talented. Maybe he could play a role. Although, you know, is he really going to get in ahead of it as Piliqueta? Probably not. But, you know, it's an option. Um, going down, yeah, there's, there's just not a lot at all. Um, Kurt Zuma, maybe. Bakayoko, he's been doing well at Milan this year. He could maybe come back. Um, Kennedy, um, not been good for us at all this year, but he, he's done it before in the Premier League and, and could op- offer something uh, in the squad. And then you've got Batshuayi and Tammy Abraham, and that's about it of, of the players out alone. And obviously Mason Mount, who, who who will come back and play a part, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, it's not a lot there. So it's going to have to be keeping the players they've got, and that includes Eden Hazard, uh, Cam Hudson Adoy, um, and any other players that that could be looking to move on. So it's 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 very it's going to be interesting, and and this is why I think they need to see this as a real opportunity to. To bring these young players in, you know, you've got Hudson Adoy, um, who sees himself up there with the Jason Sancho's and the Osmana Dembele's of this world in sort of talent and what they've been doing. He thinks he can match that. Uh, I'm not sure if he can, but you know, this is his chance to prove that um, if he if he does get more game time. Uh, Mason Mount, I think, is, is a huge talent. Uh, done very well at Derby and Vitesse in the past. Maybe he could get more games. Uh, Andres Christensen should be playing a lot more for Chelsea. I don't know why he isn't. I think last year was their best Absolutely. defender. He, he he made I think he's one of those players that did make a few more mistakes and maybe you know the Gary Cahill or David you know not David Luiz because he makes tons but um, you know he, he makes a few more mistakes than maybe you'd like but his overall game is quality you know he's really really good and he's only 22 years old so he should be getting a lot more game time um, so yeah I think it's going to be good to see those get uh, get more time on the pitch uh, and Chelsea should you know step back from seeing the Champions League as is. The, the, and, and winning trophies as the as the end goal every season. They they this should you know, be a wake up call for them, and, and they should see this as an opportunity to take a step back, maybe take a few lower league finishes, uh, playing in the Europa League and just building the team up, sort of like what Liverpool did a few years ago. Um, they didn't challenge for for a long time, and now they've slowly developed under a manager. And it's not the Chelsea way at all, but they might be forced into it because if they can't sign players, they can't just keep throwing money money at the problem they're going to have to show some faith in in these players and and yes yeah, it's, it's 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 one that just makes me think like, like i said earlier that lampard would be quite good for this job just to, to bring these young players in and just basically give him a year two years of just a free hit saying look we we're not we, we've obviously got a lot of things you know holding us back at the moment for you know um for transfer bans and punishments and, and things like that just give you know, put a team on the pitch, give the young players a go, and just see what happens. It, it, it's really that's really what Chelsea should be doing. They're not going to do it because it's Abramovich, but that's what they should be doing. But yeah, there's not a lot of players out on loan, so it's, it's going to be pretty much the ones that are there at the moment to get them out. You've got Pul- the only one is Pulisic coming in, um, which that deal makes a lot more sense now, where they loaned it back to Dortmund because they they 
thought there might be a chance they might not be able to sign anybody in the summer. So yeah, he's 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 a big. There's gonna be a lot of you know pressure put on him, especially if Hazard goes. But yeah, I, I don't think Hazard could go. No, I, I just don't think he can go. I think he's gonna to have to stay for the next 12, 24 months and see the rest of his peak years at Chelsea, which is a bit of a disappointment, really, because he he could have done a lot more. Yeah, you at the end there touched on something I think is very true, which is if they can manage to hang on to Hudson Odoi and they have Pulisic coming in, I, I don't think it ties Hazard to the club anymore. Um, it would obviously be a big blow while they couldn't buy a quote unquote direct replacement, but they have wide players available. Um, although that probably would also mean that Pedro and William would be kept, the latter of which I don't understand why there's such an incredible demand for in the world game that clubs like Barcelona allegedly are offering. 40 million plus, and then Chelsea are saying no. I very much don't understand that. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see if uh, Hazard ends up going or not. But uh, again, I think they're probably still going to get the summer window to fix anything they need to in advance. And as we've pretty much all agreed, sorry, it's probably not going to be their next season. So if you do bring in someone like Lampard, as Jake mentioned, that's familiar with some of the youth at the club already, has some on loan uh, at Derby there. Maybe that's the way forward. And as uh, Jake was mentioning, there's a lot of young talent still at that club that are probably ready to step up and haven't been given the chance that maybe this will be the chance that they needed to really break into the first team. All right, now heading into what I initially thought was going to be the news that we would kind of open with today, especially having Jim on. Uh, Lester have finally sacked Claude Puel, uh, the third consecutive manager Lester have sacked after six consecutive losses. So this seems to be kind of a less line in the sand, more like line in the stone there. Um, for, for what can cost you your job at Leicester. So, Jim, we'll just start with you and, and your thoughts on the departing manager. It didn't come as a surprise. I think we've been speaking, you know, I think every time I've come on to the pod this season, we've <laughs> yeah. spoken in some way, shape or form about Puel's seemingly uh, tenuous position. Um, and obviously it's been a pretty difficult season as a Leicester City fan, what happened with the helicopter crash early on in the, the campaign somewhat kind of put all that into perspective. And I think that um, maybe, you know, kind of reset the, um, ex- not the expectation level, but almost like the, you know, the acceptability level um, on, on what the fans w- would want out of the season. But since then, you know, very little has improved. If anything, it's gotten progressively worse um, under Puel. The, I think there are some semi-redeeming qualities about what he was trying to do at Leicester. I don't think it is necessarily all bad. Um, he he does have a pretty low win percentage um, compared to to Leicester managers of the past, and his results obviously haven't helped him. Um, what he has tried to do is, you know, we've spent half an hour talking about Chelsea um, on this podcast already. And what he has tried to do, and to some degree successfully, um, is bring through uh, the younger players um, and sign younger players and try to bring them through and nurture them. Um, if you look at our starting eleven. Um, you know, the likes of Ben Chilwell, who, who's gone on to break into the England squad. Uh, James Madison and Damari Gray have both made England uh, appearances for the first time as well this year. Um, there are players in our squad who are young and ambitious and Puel has tried to work with them. I think the issue is that perhaps he still hasn't found a system which gets the best out of them and works with what he would want to do from his managerial philosophy almost. Um, 
he he prefers a very possession-based style of football and that kind of slow, methodical build-up, which really doesn't suit the you know the way that our team is set up. We've got so many exciting forward players, and when you look at the team on paper, it's difficult to believe how little we've created in games, and that goes for that Crystal Palace game as well. You know, a lot of people will level the. Um, uh, the accusation that particularly before the Batshuayi um, opener that Leicester had the best of the game and they did they had a lot of possession in the defensive and midfield third but created very very little the Chelsea defence really the Crystal Palace defence sorry weren't doing a lot and they didn't have to do a lot because there were so few efforts on goal you know of any real note or merit that it, it was difficult to understand how little we'd created given the talent on the pitch. Um, and I think that's probably the issue. You know, Leicester's best years, obviously, the, the kind of Premier League winning years, but also the, um, the the kind of great escape season under Nigel Pearson were a counter-attack, sit deep and spring from the back kind of approach. And there's been none of that this season. Even though there's a little bit of counter-attack, everything is more likely to go backwards and sideways than it is forward. And if you look at our striking options, um, you know, it's worth noting that Leicester historically, well, certainly in the last three transfer, uh, last three years uh, since we won the league, have been abysmally bad at spending money. Um, there's been a few kind of bright sparks um, but by and large, the big money buys that we've made, bar, I'd say maybe Harry Maguire and the jurist very much, on Madison, particularly after the game against Crystal Palace, in which he was abysmal. Um, bar Maguire, we haven't had any really, you know, any massive success stories, given what we've spent. If you look at successive managers that have bought Kalichi Iheanacho, uh, Islam Soleimani, Ahmed Musa. You know, Adrian Silva, that was a debacle from the start. And, he, you know, he never really looked anything like the player that we expected for the money that we paid for him. Um, there are a lot of players there on big money contracts and there's just not, no one seems to be able to get the best out of them on a consistent basis. Now, perhaps that is something to do with the player power in the dressing room. I would certainly think it's played a huge role. And, you know, it's 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 clear to me that the way that the reigns of uh, Ranieri, Shakespeare, um, and Puel ended, there is an underlying issue with that squad um, in the dressing room in terms of once you've lost them, you've really lost them. There's no coming back from that because we've seen it time and time again. I think it's too difficult to ignore now um, if there was any doubt before, which I don't think there was for many anyway. Um, but it, it, I think with Puel's case, it was more just a clash of styles in the sense that he knew what he was trying to do, but he wasn't able or he didn't have the tools to do it. Now, I struggle to believe it was the former. Uh, sorry, I struggle to believe it was the latter. I think it's the former in the sense that he didn't know how to get the best out of his players um, in terms of what he wanted to do. Now, part of that should be changing your approach if needed. You work with the tools that you've got. Um, Leicester don't have players that are necessarily the best technically. There's a lot of pace and raw power in that team and kind of youthful aggression in the sense of like you know Harvey Barnes, Damari Gray, even Jamie Vardy to some degree still plays like a young kind of 21 year old pacey attack aggressive you know he's best when he's closing people down um, and pressing from the front and there was just none of that this year 
Um, and the results have just got progressively worse. You know, we, we haven't won a game since New Year's Day when we beat Everton in one of the worst games of football you'll see all season. Um, even the goal that we did score was a massive defensive error from an Everton player and Jamie Vardy was basically clean through on goal. Um, so the fans had turned against him a, co- a good few weeks ago and it's just been a culmination of that. And I think the the fact that the Crystal Palace players managed to add some gloss to what was already a kind of comfortable 2-1 lead um, really just kind of did him no favours and, you know, that's all she wrote. Uh, where we go from here, I don't know. Um, it's going to be interesting because whoever comes in has got to come in knowing full well that there is an expectation around the club about kind of getting the right style of play um, and watching exciting football. Um, and I think that's probably a, um, a byproduct of winning the league in such style, you know, that we did playing kind of that fast counter-attacking football, um, which isn't always great to watch when you sit in defensive. It's not great, but it's the end product that matters. And we've just not scored enough goals under Puel. We've gone behind too early, partly through being too passive uh, and left ourselves too much to do. Um, and he's paid the price for that. Yeah, it's not really a shock, really, that this happened today. Um, also a bit sad, to be honest. I quite like Puel. I think he's a very good manager. Um, it, I thought he did really well at Southampton. Um, before that, he did really well at um, Lyon and Nice. His Nice team especially were, were excellent to watch, got them to the Champions League. Um, had Hatton Ben Arthur playing the best football of his career, which is no mean feat. Um, and the fact that he sort of got that tune out of Ben Arthur made me a little bit surprised he couldn't get more out of this uh, Leicester attack because, as Jim says, there's a lot of talent there. Um, Damari Gray, Harvey Barnes, James Madison, lots of you know, exciting, dynamic players that you'd think would suit, um, that, you know, is sort of similar to Ben Arthur in the way they play, some of them play, uh, and you'd have thought that you'd be able to get more out of them, which you didn't. Um, I just think, yeah, I completely agree with Jim. It was a clash of styles. I think Puel likes to have his possession-based football, likes to be, you know, slow, methodical build-up, likes to try and dominate games by having the ball uh, and then, you know, sort of, just tiring your t- the other team into submission, um, which he did very well in France. The, the thing I think he struggled with in the Premier League is just the lack of time you get in any job. Um, at Monaco, with his manager, he got 113 games. Leo, he got 299 games. Le- uh, Leon, he got 156. And Nice, he got 169. Southampton, 53. Leicester, 67. He's a manager that likes to build over over time and bring players in the player's style. Uh, and get the players adapting to it in a slow, it's, it, it slowly. That's the way he's, he did it in France, but in the, in the Premier League, just don't get that time, unfortunately. But no, he did well at Southampton. Um, they've been on a downward spiral ever since. Uh, and I, I think he did well at Leicester. I thought last year he came in and did well. Um, this year, looking at the table, I'm surprised that they're not lower based on the fact he's just been fired. He, you know, only only four points behind West Ham and Pellegrini doesn't seem to be under any sort of pressure. And they've spent twice, three times what Leicester have um, recently. So th- that's somewhat surprising to me. Um, I just think it, just the, the, the constant negative press that he got uh, and the players sort of turning on him, um, sort of give, giving up or, or you know not giving the effort that they could. Um, he lost those uh, a long time ago, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm not, not surprised he's gone, but I don't think it's been terrible. Um, it's just been a... F- the home form has been bad, I think. There's been a few too many losses at home against teams they shouldn't be. I remember the Cardiff one was especially bad and and only three teams have got a worse home record than Leicester this season. So it's not great in that respect. I think he's a, a good manager. I think if a, if a really job comes up the next 
12 months as it definitely will he should be one that should be considered for me I think he's, he's quite decent and and if he's given time he could really build something and, and even in the last transfer window Yuri Tielmans he's a player that is perfect for the way Pure wants to play very good in possession can can you, know, you can give him the ball um a hundred times a game and he would give it away less than five he's perfect for that sort of game but he's just he's not been given enough time with him and the team sadly um and and even against Palace they had a lot of possession a lot of shots but there wasn't a lot of clear-cut chances whereas Palace seemed to create a lot more clear-cut chances I know unexpected goals I think Leicester had more than 20 shots and and Palace had about seven but unexpected goals Palace came out on top which sort of just shows the 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 limitations of what Pure was doing and, and perhaps there was more he could have got out of the players especially if he would you know played more in the style that that Ranieri and Shakespeare did, sort of that counter-attacking um, style. But yeah, it, I don't think he's a bad manager. I just think it was a job that wasn't suited to him. Um, but if if he came back again in the Premier League, I think he'd be a very good appointment for somebody. What about Fulham? If they moved on from Puel, and it, or if they moved on from Ranieri. Sorry, got my lesser managers mixed up there. But uh, last week, Russ said potentially Fulham might be looking to make another managerial swap this season. Do you think he's the kind of guy that could go there and, and potentially keep him up? I don't think he should keep them up. <laughs> I, I think they're far too gone for that. But I think he'd been a good manager there. I think they've got players that would suit his system a lot more than, than Leicester had. Yeah, I think he'd be decent there. But I don't think he'd really see himself in the championship so I don't think I don't think he'd go there but yeah I, th- I think it would be a good fit if if it was done a little bit earlier in the season hmm. I think the problem that he's going to have now Puel is that he's been you know rightly or wrongly he's been labeled a boring manager with a negative style of football uh, and unless he's willing to kind of it, he either needs to find a club that will give him 18 months regardless of the results um, which is difficult to do because I think the fan bases of the, of the clubs who are linked with him will immediately start on a negative. I know that sounds bad, and I know you should treat every manager on their merits, what they do at your club, not someone else's. But I almost feel like he's he, he's going to come with a tag now where it, it kind of happened to at Leicester to some degree, to be fair, because of this fact that he got Southampton to eighth in the Premier League in a, a cup final and still got the sack. I think he came with a little bit of baggage already in terms of the fans weren't willing to give him as long as they perhaps would for another candidate. And I just don't know. It would it would take a quite dramatic turnaround or a, me, a really kind of immediate pickup to get the fans on side of another club. I could be completely wrong on that. I just feel like it's a, a kind of issue that might follow him around in English football a little bit. Perhaps a move back to France where he's a little bit more, um, familiar, you know, he kind of carries less of a... Um, a kind of stigma around that and maybe the players get a little bit more time on the ball. He can, he can work to, more to his style. Um, you know, the, everyone knows the Premier League is particularly quick and you don't get a lot of time on the ball. Um, and, and that's sometimes why players and, and managers in this instance maybe struggle to adapt to that. But I do feel that it might well be that he, he kind of has this stigma that follows him around a little bit and you almost might get this kind of sigh out of fans that are being linked with him. I know, I know Jake obviously is a, is a fan of his work and, and and that's fine. And to be honest, I can see some positives in what he was trying to do completely. I just feel like in the English game, it would take a very unique club to take him on 
have him accepted by the fan base and give him the time to do what he wants to do because it's not an immediate turnaround. And a lot of managers get hired needing to produce results in the first six months. Um, uh, and that is a very, very difficult thing to do when you're trying to implement that style of football. I think it almost takes too long because you run out of kind of plank to walk. You know, for want of a better analogy, you're almost walking that tightrope as a football manager and it's going to take a very forgiving club potentially to give him two or three transfer windows to get the players that he needs, give him the funds that he needs and maybe accept results that aren't amazing or maybe even satisfactory in the short term for the long term gain because those kind of jobs just don't exist anymore. Hmm. Yeah, all excellent points there, Jim. And it'll be interesting to see where he does land next again with, with that kind of stigma. Uh, especially the Premier League, I think it would be hard for him to find another job. And in particular, I feel like he's exhausted the kind of mid-level tier in the Premier League um, with Southampton where they were at the time, obviously not where they've ended up, and then Leicester where they are. Maybe he'd have to go a little bit further down the Premier League table if he wanted to stay in England or you know, go, go back abroad, maybe rehabilitate the image a bit or just find a club, as you say, that's uh, a little more defensive-minded and wouldn't mind that brand of football. Um, obviously, very late in the show to start uh, <laughs> club topics, but I suppose, uh, Jim, we just did a little bit uh, there with uh, the sacking of Puel. Uh, but you also brought up Jamie Vardy, and you said the play style hasn't really benefited him. He scored just one goal in the last five matches. Do you think a switch in appointment will lead to Jamie Vardy getting better? And on the pitch, what needs to change to, to get the best out of him again? Um. It may well do. I think he is probably one of the players who, I'm not saying he's not been trying his best, but I think he probably struggles with the motivation angle under a manager that isn't potentially, you know, the best fit for him. Um, I think he's probably one of the more easily frustrated players. And it's very difficult for him because he is the focal point of the team. And unfortunately, I think it might almost be easier for Vardy if a player like Ian Acho was contributing in the final third. Um, or Shinji Okazaki or any one of the other numerous kind of players that we've signed to potentially score goals. Um, he is so much the focal point of our team that, it, you know, that pressure seems to weigh heavy on his shoulders a lot of the time. Um, and it's frustrating for him. So he, I think what, what I think it's, it's no kind of secret that to get the best out of Vardy, you need to be playing balls in behind the defence. Um, that isn't always possible because what happens is that teams sit deep and try and counter, counter that. Um, which is what teams didn't seem to do in the kind of 2015-16 campaign. Everyone thought they could get the better of that um, counter-attacking style and it just kept coming back to bite the opposition. So I think the playing style probably needs to just return to that kind of fast break um, element. And to be fair, the team looks relatively well set up for that. If you look at the likes of Ndidi and Tielemans holding yeah. um, and the attacking trio of you know Harvey Barnes, Damari Gray and James Madison, who started against Crystal Palace on Saturday, uh, if you put Jamie Vardy up top with that and play that kind of high-press, um, aggressive running style then you would, I think, probably return to that more kind of familiar Leicester style. I think that would get the best out of Vardy. But yeah, I think he's probably feeling the weight of the um, attacking, um, you know, kind of expectation on his shoulders, partly because the others aren't delivering and partly because the, the style is maybe not playing to his strengths. Because playing the ball into his feet 30 yards out from goal isn't where Vardy's most effective. He's most effective either when he's running at a player um, with the ball at his feet on a counter-attack or he's being put in behind. Um, and also, he's not a young player anymore. He came to football quite late, prof professional football, certainly, um, full-time. And 
it may well be that he's just kind of his powers are waning slightly. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens with a new manager, whether or not that brings around a kind of resurgence in his um, in his goal scoring, because it would be kind of much appreciated. But also, it would be interesting to see how a change in style um, impacts his his ability in the final third. Interesting. Well, hopefully, we'll get to see the best out of Vardy again, uh, as when he's kind of high and flying and making those lung-busting runs to score those one-on-ones. He can be a very uh, fascinating player to watch. Um, Coming to you now, Jake. um, Miguel Almiron makes his uh, full debut for Newcastle this weekend, and we have plenty of American listeners, plenty of English listeners, and who knows, maybe even a Paraguayan listener or two. Uh, So how would you break down uh, his first match there for uh, Newcastle? Yeah, he was excellent, wasn't he? I thought he, he was one of the best debuts I've seen from a Newcastle player in a long time, probably goes up there um, with with Ben Arthur um, with with his debut at Everton when he scored the winning goal. Uh, Sissoko had a very good debut against Chelsea, but he scored two goals, and I seem to remember. Um, but no, this is right up there. His impact was obvious, and we turned from a very defensive team with no attacking outlet to a defensive team with an attacking outlet, which was quite nice. <laughs> Um, probably helped by Huddersfield having 10 men, but the fact they had 10 men was down to Almiron because um, just before the red card, he, he sort of got thrown goal. And it, it's one of those ones that you don't see very often where he's sort of onside, but you, you don't expect the ball to be played because no one's going to get through and on goal without getting, you know, without a defender coming in the way. But he just absolutely sprinted off and there was no stopping him. Unlucky not to score then. And the Huddersfield defenders after that were scared of him. Um Probably a reason why Tommy Smith went in for that tackle. I don't think he would have done if if Al, if Al, if it wasn't Almiron because he's just so quick and he, he had no chance of stopping him. So he had to to bring him down and it was a particularly ugly tackle that, that deserved a red card. And I think it's the first red card a opposition player has received against Newcastle since 2014, maybe even oh, before wow. that. So it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a remarkable stat. I think in the championship, it, it was, we had a couple um, opposition players sent off, but not in the Premier League. I haven't been in a long time. Um, so yeah, was, he, he's had an instant impact, created a lot, um, a lot of chances, uh, linked up quite well with Perez and Rondon. Um, yeah, it just looked amazing. Um, it looks exactly what we need from a 20 million player. Um, there's probably going to be poor games as well but you know we had Christian Atsu playing that role before and Almiron is is 10 20 times better than than Christian Atsu so you know if we're going to bring in one big player transfer window you've got to make sure that they make a massive impact on your team and Almiron's definitely done that in the short time he's here um yeah so I think he had a really good debut and and I think he's going to have a really good second half of the season he's going to be very exciting to watch for for both Newcastle fans and just other fans in the, in the Premier League, probably not against your club, but I think he's he's going to be an exciting player to watch it and one that might make Newcastle matches worth watching for for neutrals because I know they can be very boring. <laughs> yeah, so keep an eye on Almiron. I only got to catch the first half of that match, but he looked very bright. And as you say on that on that red card, it, it was only a red card because he lifted the ball right over the leg of uh, Smith right before he lunged in. So you know uh, if if that hadn't been his deft then uh, A, he wouldn't have been collided into, which was surely painful, but also uh, wouldn't have drawn the red card there either. Uh, We're going to just quickly do um, match previews. Obviously, another round of Premier League action coming uh, midweek here. Um, We'll start off with you, Jim. Leicester versus Brighton. Uh, Give us a quick take on what you think we'll see in this one. 
Um, it'll be interesting because it looks unlikely they'll have a, a full-time replacement in for Puel, so it's likely to be uh, Mike Stoll who's taking charge of uh, first-team affairs. Um, it's difficult to know, I guess, <laughs> because of all the uh, uncertainties, but hopefully we see a return to that more kind of direct style uh, which Leicester have, have kind of perfected in, in recent years. Um, I know Brighton aren't in, you know, in the best of uh, form at the moment, but a home game against an opponent like that, I think we should be going out and aiming to win and um, hopefully we'll get back to winning ways because it's been a long, long time at the King Power since uh, we picked up three points. So hopefully a win. Yeah, and then Jake, uh, you're going to be facing Burnley. I'm actually going to be covering this one. Um, so hopefully it'll be a good match. Do you think it'll be the Almiron show again? Ah, hopefully. Uh, Burnley are in good form. Um, beat Tottenham at the weekend, obviously. I've not lost. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> not lost in a while. I think it's seven games, isn't it? So, in good form. But, you know, that's got to come to an end at some point. And we've won our last three home matches on the spin. So, you know, something's got to give. Um, one of those records is coming to an end. I don't think it's going to be our one for some reason. I think, we, I think Benitez is very good at winning these games. He wins the games we have to win. And I think, I think, you know, for, for, for weeks he would have been seeing these two games, Huddersfield at home, Burnley at home. That is a massive opportunity. If we take six points out of that, that's probably the end of our immediate relegation phase. We're not going to be looking at the bottom of the table every single week. That would take us up to 31 points. Um, it's not safe, but at this point of the season, it's 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 you're well on your way there. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think we're going to win this. I think we've got a lot of confidence from that Huddersfield game. Yes, they had 10 men, but we created a hell of a lot of chances. Probably should have won five or six. No, hit the uh, post and crossbar four or five times. Uh, really, really good performance. Almiron, obviously, having a lot of confidence. Rondon's got a lot of confidence. Um, Burnley are going to be tough to break down, but we've, beat, we've beaten them earlier in the season. Uh, obviously, not the Burnley team they are now because they don't have Joe Hart in goal. But yeah, they're not going to go unbeaten for the rest of the season, are they? So, yeah, I think, I think we're going to beat them. I think we'll, we'll, I think it'll be a 1 0. Um, not, you know, loads of goal malfaction at either end because both these teams are very good at the back. I think if we, we're looking at um, games like this with two teams at the bottom of the table, um, we're normally quite good. I think we've got the best defensive record in matches like this out of the bottom 14. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got something to build on there. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think we'll win. Benitez, as manager, he wins these games. We we win 1-0. Mm. Uh, yeah, then, unfortunately, because I'm covering that one, I'm going to miss Chelsea Tottenham, which I'm sure will be fascinating uh, in the wake of this whole sorry caper thing that we started the, the show off with. Um, it's a London derby, and this matchup is always a crazy one uh, pretty much ever since the uh, battle of Stamford Bridge match where Tottenham got the uh, roughly infinity yellow cards. Um, so yeah, it's going to be fascinating, especially with them playing Sunday, playing extra minutes um, to see who's back in time, who will get rotated. If if the fallout between Sari and the squad will be more than just Kepa. Uh, obviously, like we said, David Luiz was the only player that even went up to him. Is that going to fall down on maybe Aspilicueta as captain for not for not stepping up? I don't know. But it, it should be a very entertaining watch, not only because of the football on the pitch, but because of the narratives off of it. And because uh, I didn't get to be on the show too much today, uh, just because Tottenham lose matches doesn't mean they've bottled a title race. Um, that's just not... <laughs> clubs lose football matches all the time. And the expectation that Tottenham are going to win every match the rest of the season to be title contenders is ridiculous. Winning all the matches without Kane was why they were even in that bracket to begin with. 
a little bit of regression was set to occur, but uh, we'll leave it there with me making about myself on the outro. But it really should have been about you two guys who have been fantastic as always today. Uh, if you'd like to tell the folks where to find you, now would be a great time. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I've been Jim. You can find me on Twitter at JimNight88. I'm also um, head of content marketing for a company called The Zone Group, which incorporates some football websites like Soccerway and Goal.com as well. Um, I write a lot of the betting content that goes onto those sites. So if that's your thing, then uh, check us out over there. Yeah, thanks for listening. You can get me on Twitter at JakeJack with two N's, and I write for EPL Index. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can also find my fantasy writings over at Goal as well as ESPN. So if you're into that, uh, be sure to check that out. Also, obviously, the championship show comes out on this very channel. Excellent stuff for the run in there. Uh, So be sure to check that out as well. Thanks to you both again so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.